Hello everyone, I'm Jordan Steingraber. Welcome to the first episode in a series of episodes from your friends at Faith Chapel on adjusting to the new normal as we live surrounded by COVID-19. Many of us have found ourselves in new work rhythms, new family rhythms, and we're all figuring out how we can still maintain friendships. We wanted to have some conversations centered around what we're learning. We'll be talking to medical professionals, creatives, parents, health gurus, pastors, and productivity experts. In the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring some topics that will hopefully be helpful to you and give you practical insight into this new season of life we're in. We don't have all the answers, and even the people we're talking to don't have all the answers, but we hope to learn from each other and grow together. In fact, we're even learning as we go with this podcast. Along the way, we'll ask you for feedback or questions for the guests and conversations. And you can always reach out by emailing podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. This week, Dr. Chris French joins Pastor Nate and I to discuss virus ties. Did you see my tie, though? I didn't hear if you responded to it. It's viruses. Where, where do you buy a virus tie? Uh, It's not really viruses. What a virus is. A virus basically is one of the many pathogens or microbes that are present on the earth. COVID-19 and his passion for both Jesus and science. Dr. French is a neurologist at St. Vincent Healthcare and has been there for seven years. In addition to being a husband and father of three children, he is also the author of the book, Medical Apologetics, The Universe Diagnosed. He also currently serves on the Council at Faith Chapel. We are honored to have him join us this week. As these things sometimes go, at the beginning of our interview, we were presented with some internet trouble, and so our conversation kind of jumped around a little bit as we began. We're going to begin the episode with COVID-19 in the context of our community. As we look at all the cases that are in Yellowstone County, um, there are, the last I've heard, five people hospitalized in Billings. And so as we look at the projections, as we look at what's in front of us, are we through the worst part of this in our community, do you think? Or do you think this is still the early stages? That's a, it's a hard question to answer. I would say uh, nobody really knows the answer to that one. Um, uh, a lot of the data does look promising so far. I think there's a glimmer of hope with um, some of the demographic um, or, or some of the statistical stuff that we've um, been able to see on the Montana website. I don't know if you've seen some of the uh, graphs that they've shown for date of onset and things. There's kind of a, a peak that it looks like we reached for date of onset of some of the illnesses around May 23rd or May 25th. Um, and so looking at some of those things, it looks promising, but um, I, I don't think anybody really knows because if you look at all of the numbers for the tests that have um, uh, kind of been undertaken so far in the whole state, there's only like 7,800 tests out of a million people here. And so that's a, it's just a low sample number to know really what the behavior of it is. And so compared to, I mean, but the number of tests in the whole United States isn't that high really either compared to the whole population. And so we're kind of basing a lot of our data off of a low number here. And, and so that gets a, a little bit hard to interpret. And so I just, it's hard to really interpret the numbers fully without looking into them too much. And so we don't want to over interpret those things either. My thought with how it looks, though, I, you can't help but have some sense of, of hope in there looking at the uh, how it's gone in Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, these things right now. And so um, it just with the number of new cases kind of staying low, even in the high density areas, 
with the number of people hospitalized kind of staying low. I mean, we really only have like, I think, 30 something hospitalizations in the entire state compared to um, like 18,000 in New York state. You know, I mean, there's a big difference in population size, but uh, I mean, that's uh, that's low. And so to answer the question, I don't know. I mean, are we behind the curve? Are we behind it all? Are we behind the surge or has it not gotten to us yet? Or are we kind of in it and um, kind of is it is it going down at this point? And so I don't know if anybody has the full answer on that, but I uh, I'm hopeful to to see that, that it's not just climbing and just out of control right now, too. Nate, as we began talking about this podcast and who have you had Chris on your on your list? Um, and there were a, a handful of other uh, medical professionals that you were talking to. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a of an update on who those people are, the council, Chris's involvement, and uh, you had a couple questions that you wanted to introduce as well. So you want to take over for those? Yeah, absolutely, Jordan. So you know, some weeks ago when the whole COVID thing started stirring. I was so grateful to have, there's three doctors in particular who are dear friends and a part of the church and they were people I could rely on. So we had this really interesting situation when um, before there were any mandates that you couldn't meet in large groups, that Saturday morning, we started moving towards that. And so we were trying to figure out what do we do with weekend services? So Chris was one of the doctors that advised and kind of helped us process through this. So Chris has been a dear friend for I, I ever since we moved to Billings and we've been in a group together with our, our wives for, I don't know, probably five years or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just a, just all around, just fantastic guy. He's become a really, really dear friend. And so, and he's probably the most rabid Cubs fan you've ever met in your life. And he keeps me semi engaged in baseball. I'll look occasionally just to like have like some baseball talk to be able to have with him. Yeah. So you have good baseball um, stories of yourself. Yeah. 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 Yes. I've got a few because my baseball career ended pretty prematurely. Um, So Chris, a, a couple of questions I had for you, I've asked you a million and you've helped answer so many, but the first one would be this, Chris, there are so many voices out there right now. And there are so many people who st- they speak like authoritatively. Um, and, and then I kind of think of a spectrum. You know, there's people that are really, really conservative when they're talking about COVID and um, its potential. And there are people who like are on the opposite side. They're really downplaying it. And I run into a lot of people, I experience this myself, that just are a bit, we're not certain who we should be listening to. I think it would be helpful for somebody like you who spent years of their life learning about the human body. Chris, who should we listen to right now? It, it's a good question too. Um, I've kind of been trying to find some good person to that does the work sifting through all this to uh, rely on what they have to say. Um, you're right. I mean, it's a huge spectrum. Everybody kind of has a different take on it. Uh, everybody's looking at the same stuff, but coming up with different things. And so um, I, I do have a few people kind of here at the hospital that I listen to a lot. Uh, and so uh, some of the um, uh, the chief medical officers here at, at St. V's provide us with a ton of information. Um, I think that Scott Sears, one of the uh, internal medicine doctors here, he 
uh, does a radio uh, 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 guest uh, a spot like once a week, I think, for Montana radio. And so he's a good source. Uh, but then, you know, nationally, I, I really think that uh, a few of these people, I mean, I think it's good to get both sides. So Dr. Fauci is great, you know, and things change. I mean, every, you you know this too, things that we're certain of about everything a week ago seem to be not true by tonight, right? And so it, nobody knows, it's just uncharted. And so really trying to figure out what the data means, what all this means, what's really going on is tricky. I kind of um, have, you know, I, I enjoy this. So my specialty is neuroimmunology. And so I've really learned how to, I mean, <laughs> how the immune system and the nervous system affect each other and viruses affecting uh, the nervous system along with other um, things like parasites and bacteria. But it's hard to actually know what to do with a lot of this data as it just kind of comes in each day and it's just new stuff that we just don't know anything about. Um, the it, 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 So... I guess two things that I, I would kind of want to mention here. I think that um, something, I don't know if you guys have heard of, say, uh, herd immunity. Has that come across, the idea of herd immunity with the immune system? Yeah. So I think people should avoid that right now and uh, it, it, it just don't don't get into it. It makes no sense to talk about herd immunity with the coronavirus at the moment. Uh, herd immunity, for anybody who doesn't know, is basically the idea that enough if enough people are immune to a virus or some sort of pathogen, then it'll protect people who are not immune to it already. And to get to that level, mm -hmm. it, it's totally different on the pathogen and how contagious it is. But say you need an 80% population immunity for something to protect vulnerable people or people who are not immune so far. So it makes no sense to talk about that in this with this right now because... <clears throat> only, I mean, look at the numbers. There's only been 2.2 uh, or 2.3 million tests in the United States right now, and there's 450,000 confirmed cases, okay? So 2.2 million people have been tested in the U.S. out of 350 million or whatever. That's around 2% or maybe a little bit less than 2%. And if out of those 2%, only 450,000 have tested positive, um, if you really want to think about who actually has the coronavirus, who who really has COVID, but hasn't been tested, people are saying multiply the positive case by maybe 10 at the most, 10 at the most. And if that that's true, wow. then that would mean that 4.5 million people have it right now. 4.5 million people out of 350 million, that's barely over 1%. Okay. And if you want to get to 80% for herd right. immunity, that's that would be catastrophic. So the only way you can talk about herd immunity is right. once there's a vaccine. Once you get people immune without getting the disease and that's it. Okay. So no talking about herd immunity. So things like that, that that's been a lot. Cause I, I, when I talk to patients, I, the first thing I ask them now, cause I can't shake their hand, you know, I can't get too close to them is just ask them how they're doing. How are you doing with this? You know, and people do start talking about all these things that they hear on TV and, um, through, through voices. And so it's, uh, it, 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 there's a lot, a lot of talking going on. I would say a person that I like to listen to is, um, his name is Scott Atlas. And so he's kind of a national figure. He's at, uh, I think it's either Stanford or UCSF. 
I think it's at Stanford, <clears throat> but he's a neuroradiologist, um, but he's, he's kind of a voice of reason, um, you know, and so I'd say one of the big tricks is not listening to emotion, <laughs> people who are really emotional about it, you know, and, and, and so that's a trick. And, and then kind of when you can get that sense of fear mongering about things, that's, that's where I kind of switch channels to, you know, and so I think there's so much out there, it's hard not to get consumed, but you got to stay updated at the same time. So uh, there's certain voices that you, you got to find. Yeah. And so uh, for me, it's other people around here. I go to one of my colleagues who I get a lot of information from just because he seems to be really down to earth. And I just kind of even today, I'm like, How, what do you think? What do you think about the new stuff going on today? And he's kind of more hopeful and kind of finds a silver lining in, in things too. So I think everybody has to find maybe their own voice of reason, but then find some good ones that um, that can help you sift through um, a lot of that stuff out there. It's hard. Oh, that's good, Chris. You know, it was interesting when you said um, the people who are most emotional, and there are a lot of emotional voices out here. Yeah. And there's something about, I think, the hu human nature that the more irate or the more impassioned someone seems, oftentimes we give them a sense of credit that, oh, they know what they're talking about, but I love that. So Dr. Scott Atlas. Hey, I have yeah. one other question for you, Chris. Um, yep. and, and this is part of this is a, he's a wise man. And this is part of why he serves even on our church council. But I know this is very basic, but I just don't have much background in this. And I imagine there are others. So Chris, describe like in layman's terms. Okay. Does somebody like me describe a virus what it does. And I hear things about how one of the challenges with viruses is they can morph, um, they can change. Talk to us a little bit about what is happening when someone gets COVID and why does a virus have very little impact on certain people and then have a devastating impact on others? Yeah, you know, in, in med school, you know, you learn all this biochemistry in, in classes on virology and you kind of go through the typical ones. So a virus basically is one of the many pathogens or microbes that are present on the earth. OK, so you got bacteria, you got viruses, you have parasites and like fungi and stuff like that. So viruses are, are the smallest ones. You know, um, when you think of infections like um, tuberculosis or most pneumonias, a lot of those are bacterial um, or skin infections. But most things like colds are caused by coronaviruses and rhinoviruses mostly. Um, so viruses and bacteria are totally, totally different. Um, you know, from the large scale, there are so, so I, you know, I love this kind of apologetics kind of take and numbers and just making them totally meaningless. Okay. So think of this. There are so many viruses on the planet, on planet earth right now. This may, this will make no sense, but there's one, they estimate one times 10 to the 30th or something like that. And it's just, it, it makes th that number meaningless. So if you take something that's in the nanometer size, but there's one times 10 to the 30th of them, that would stretch past the center of the Milky Way from here. So they're everywhere is the point, right? They're all over the place. That's how many viruses there are. And so if you take a, a, a just a spoonful of dirt, which we all eat as a kid and still kids should still do that, um, if you take a spoonful of dirt, one teaspoon, 
there's a, a billion, a billion microbes in there and they don't do anything. So most viruses don't cause disease. Most bacteria don't cause disease. So what a virus basically is, is all it is is a, a bunch of little proteins. It's tiny, it's microscopic, smaller than our cell, way smaller than any human cell. Um, they have genetic material in them. It's either RNA or DNA. And their main purpose is to, to find a place to help it replicate. And so all they do is, is roam about, you know, roam about the earth and find something that it can use to make more of it. <clears throat> That's it. And so, for example, the flu virus will go in if it gets into somebody in a high enough viral load and your immune system can't get rid of it. It'll go in, into certain cells. It'll inject itself. It'll attach to your cells, inject itself in and then go to this spot called a ribosome. Technically, it's a ribosome. All it does is read DNA or RNA and turn it into more protein. So it'll turn it into more virus inside of your cell, and then it'll get sent out, out of the cell, ejected out, and then gets into more. If you get an a, a electron microscope of a cell that's infected by coronavirus or something, it'll have hundreds or thousands of the virus on the outside of it and that's when it just gets too much it just it just inundates and overwhelms the cell's ability to protect itself so they go in and then they they uh, cause your your own body to to reproduce that the virus and so it's not until it overwhelms your immune system that you really get sick and that you um your own immune system kind of explodes and, and starts causing problems. So that's what happens with SARS and the coronavirus is not necessarily the virus itself, but then your body's over response to the virus. And that's when people get really sick. Um, one thing that I want people, and I don't know the fallout of this. I really, I mean, nobody really knows the true psychological, emotional, personal fallout that's going to happen with every person. And, uh, I just I I feel and I kind of am afraid that people are going to become more germaphobic than they are, you know. So people have to be aware that I mean, thirty thousand species of bacteria. Okay, not viruses, but there's thirty thousand known species of bacteria, and less than one percent of those cause disease in humans. Less than one percent are pathogenic. So, you know, the the point is that most of them are good. Most of them are good. Most of them are on our skin your body is made up of about 10 times the number of bacterial cells than than makes up your own body from your own dna so you so being a germaphobe is somewhat contradictory to just being alive <laughs> you can't kill them all and you don't want to kill them all so my, mm. my hope is don't be so afraid of this right. don't be so afraid and be consumed by fear of getting sick of 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 getting it this is different the reason the coronavirus is so different is because there's no cure for it and there's no vaccine for it. And so we just want to slow the spread of it so that it buys us time. That's all we're doing is buying time, buying time so that we're not overwhelmed, buying time so that the economy, so that people aren't <laughs> just crushed by this, you know, and it doesn't go on and on. So, um, so that, that's kind of the, the whole idea there with with viruses and does that kind of make sense or kind of help out with with uh, some of the biology with that 
Which is crazy that there are that many yep. different pathogens out there. That is, that is mind blowing. Oh yeah. They're right here. They're, I mean, seriously, they're all over the place, you know, and that, that makes me afraid too. If you think about it with the masks. Okay. I think that everybody, there's a reluctance to want to wear a mask right now, especially in Montana, you know, um, or, or in the United States. And I think it's a cultural thing. Um, obviously SARS, um, really changed behavior for people in the Asian countries with their their preference or their any reluctance they had to putting a mask on in public. And I don't think we're there yet because we haven't experienced it personally like they did. So there's probably just this cultural reluctance to want to do that. Plus, there's not that much evidence that if you're if you are asymptomatic, you're an asymptomatic carrier of the coronavirus, and you're wearing a mask that it there's not that much evidence that it protects other people necessarily. And people have to be aware that if you're wearing a mask, don't let that be a substitute for the physical distancing, right? So don't have this false sense of security that you're not infecting people. And so that's the trick is, and I can understand why the CDC didn't recommend it right away or, or even really wholeheartedly because you can see that maybe people are going to do that and be like, oh, I'm good. I'm wearing a mask. I'm not going to hurt anybody else, even if I'm sick, you know. And so it doesn't replace all the other measures that are going on right now. And um, so I, I think that there's still a, a trick with that is um, it, it shouldn't give you a false sense of security that you're not spreading the virus. So, so Chris, um, you know, one is you have all this incredible knowledge because of what you do for a living and your, your studies. Um, one of the things I respect about you is not just your, your medical um, knowledge, but you're, you're a genuine follower of Jesus. So if you have this, so there's a bunch of people that are listening that are probably genuine followers of Jesus, but you have this other aspect of you understand the human body and you understand all of this in a completely different way than we do as a follower of Jesus and a doctor. What, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, I think a lot of us are thinking about, we're, we're thinking about faith and like, we want to have faith and we're praying and we want to be careful. You know, how do you mix those two things together? Oh my gosh. I, it's hard. It, it, it's hard because of uh, a lot of uncertainty, I think, you know, and so, what do you do in crisis? Just in crisis, I think. Anyway, you know, um, I, I, th- I, I don't know. I, I, I trust God. I trust God. I, I look back and try not to forget w- things that He's already done, um, you know, and things that He's doing. You know, the um, I, one kind of thing that I, I do is I, I've kind of noticed that if I kind of praise him for his faithfulness in the morning and then praise him at night. Like the Psalm says, uh, it does give me a sense of, uh, peace when I kind of go to sleep at night and, and then kind of that, that weird fear that people kind of have early in the morning, right when they wake up and, you know, and it just kind of gets me, it gets me through that. But yeah, you know, there's always questions about, um, faith and, and, uh, and some of the science stuff. And I, I just feel like the, the the science kind of solidifies my faith. I don't think it proves you know, science doesn't isn't good at proving anything, you know, other than um, experiments and observations. And so, um, 
every atheist has a ton of faith, you know, <laughs> way more faith than I have. I mean, it just makes no sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I can understand it. I mean, but uh, it, it uh, I always go back. I mean, I go back to, uh, so Fred, Fred Nelson gave me this uh, sheet with 613 commandments on it, you know, all the mitzvahs and, and everything and the reason for the different ones. But then there was a quote by Maimonides on there the I think medieval time Jewish scholar or something, but he uh, mentioned that the reason for for so many is that so that you can actually maybe perfect one in your life. <laughs> you can perfect one commandment to get you closer to God. And so the one that I've just focused on really, really kind of, um, I don't know, solidifying in my life is know that there is one God. You know, and uh, just know that there is one God, and uh, you should have no no idols before Him. And so, um, so I've always kind of come back to that with with all of the evidence in science and uh, astronomy and and uh, microbiology and everything. Just really kind of makes sense of that. It's really coherent and it fits really well. And so, I always come back to that. And if I have doubts or like personal temptations or um or questions or why is this happening or tragedies or anything like that i am able to kind of fall back on that 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 god exists you know and um and, and it, it that's kind of my pastoral um foundation i guess that's my kind of my rock that i go to chris you know you talk about that that personal practice of you know the psalm in the morning and, and praying and being grateful and praising him for his faithfulness in the morning. And then at night, would you say that, you know, I'm just kind of curious, is you, are there other ways that you um, anchor yourself or, or reset throughout the week? I like that. I like the, that question, the uh, anchoring. And so, oh, absolutely. You know, and so I, I, I kind of try and do the discipline of, um, and I, I don't know. I, I try and discipline myself and, and do some quiet time every day. I mean, so splitting up the day into how much time your time management, right? And so, and it's different for everybody. And, but for me, you know, eight hours of sleep, right? So that takes up a third of my day. And then the rest of it is kind of preparing for work, working, seeing people, but then getting that time in with the Lord. And so and I think it might've been Nate or, or Fred Nelson. I can't remember, but you know, giving your best to God. So my best time of the day is in the morning by far. You know, it's when I'm freshest, I'm drinking my coffee, I'm enjoying the quiet, I'm able to kind of think. So I'm giving that time to God. Um, it's a hugely precious resource that we never have enough of, it seems like. And so I, I think spending that time with the Lord as much as I can, reading, praying, praying for, for people or whatever, and then just giving my anxieties and my uncertainties to the Lord, yeah. you know, and trying to like think about like the the knowledge of God or the glory you know, of him and then um, just his grace, because I, I nobody can understand his grace. And I remember talking with with Nate about it and just it's almost like a fourth dimension, this idea of grace. And how do you really fully understand the gospel and grace? So trying to learn that and then um, and then uh, uh, cultivate a relationship with Jesus and just kind of really, really do the relationship with Jesus. Um, I'm a huge introvert. And so I have no problem staying at home and, and, and doing this and spending quiet time. I, I love it. Um, but I know that I need people too. I know that I need people. I know I need small group and, 
and being social. And so that's another thing because I always feel that I kind of dread going to parties or to small groups or small talk conversations. I am not the best at that. But whenever I leave those, I feel so much better. My wife and I are smiling. We have things to talk about and everything. And so that stuff is important too. So the fellowship kind of fan in the flames, uh, encouraging, and then getting the alone time. You know, praying with my kids is helpful. Praying with my wife, we always feel better when we do that. And so kind of learning those spiritual practices. You know, I read this book recently um, by Justin Early. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's a um, kind of a merger attorney in, in Virginia. And he wrote this book called The Common Rule. Have you heard of it, Nate? I've heard of it. It's good. I mean, it helps me because I'm kind of like the I'm I'm so routine. I'm inflexible. I'm a rigid person, so I need that. And uh, but he talks about uh, eating dinner, you know, at the table with your kids. It's a it's a celebration of the Lord. It's a way to show that you are dependent on God for food for nourishment. You're dependent on humans to provide that for you because you can't sustain it yourself and those sorts of things. And so I think having dinner together with the kids, doing all these things is um, is just a way to kind of express uh, um, kind of the relationship with God. And so I think that, that that's kind of how I'm doing it right now. But I love to hear from Nate every week about the things that they do. And we kind of implement those because one time he said, um, um, oh, something about, oh, the the uh, greater is he who is in the world or greater is he who is living in me than he is in the world. Thank and you. so um, I made my kids memorize that. So anytime they're having a bad dream or something like that, I'll go down into their room and then kind of say it with them and just speak over them and, and those things. So I, I think I steal things from other people and put them into my life. Okay. That's what I do. I steal. I just kind of <laughs> take things from other people and put them that's in. That's a great way to do it. Yeah. That's how we all do it. Yeah, that's true. We had somebody ask a question, uh, knowing that we were going to be talking to you. Um, and I feel like this is one that, uh, I even have, you know, struggled with personally, you know, to kind of shift it kind of in between like personal relationships and personal uh, dynamics, but also still trying to stay safe and trying to keep my family safe. You know, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis. And so um, she's got, you know, she's trying, she started self-quarantining really, really early um, and has some other medical complications. And, but yet she wants to see her grandkids. And, um, you know, so it's been incredibly painful for her to not, uh, you know, get to be around them as often as she used to be. And so, you know, a question I think a lot of us are asking that, and maybe you, you don't have a clear cut answer, but it'd be worth bringing up is, you know, how do we, how do we continue to, to be responsible, to be safe, to flatten the curve as they call it, yet still maintain healthy relationships and healthy community. And, you know, even technically speaking, do we need to, do we need to worry about people that, you know, you talk about the herd mentality yet, you know, I'm, I'm with my family every day. That's a very, very small herd, you know? And so theoretically we're all safe right now, but how far do we extend that? You know, like, are there friendships that like, Hey, if you guys have all been safe, you're okay hanging out with that small group of friends, friends, 
And so, you know, how, how do we balance like, man, I haven't seen my mom in three weeks or, or whoever, yeah. whoever it would be or whatever that would be. Um, do you have any insight on that? Any, any thoughts on how we can be in community yet be safe at the same time? I do, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm back and forth to be honest with sure. you. I'm back and forth. Living in Montana, we're kind of blessed, I think. But you're right. I mean, there's this kind of sense of sadness or kind of an air of like melancholy that's just kind of permeating things or heavy. It's kind of heavy. Yeah. But uh, but then you're trying to like figure out what to do. And so for me, I mean, it's been like this journey or odyssey of like learning technology because i mean squadcast never heard of it zoom i'd never heard of it haiku canto we have to learn here for virtual visits um all all these things and so yeah it's just this weird state that we're in and and i mean can you think about it i think two months ago would you i mean this would have been like preposterous would you ever have thought ever Two months ago that we're like, yeah, we're going to be uh, hunkered in. Nobody can leave their homes. People are going to be telling on each other and tackling people if they leave their homes and calling the police <laughs> on them in America. No. That, I mean, seriously. So we've just kind of robotically kind of followed this in, into where we're at now. And so uh, I don't know how long it can last. But <clears throat> the thing is, yep, we're all in these little clusters. We're, we're at home with each other. We're safe that way. Um, where I get nervous, though, is like what you're talking about, Jordan, is if you have a family member who's vulnerable in the same house, and what do you, what do you do then? And there, the CDC does have recommendations and guidelines for that, but it is hard, and it's it's isolating them further. It's kind of decreasing their potential risk as much as possible. So I think there's no easy answer with this. I think we're all safe in terms of our own home clusters um you know how long this is going to go on before we re-enter and people go back to work i don't know but here's my thought too is not only i mean first of all how long are people even going to allow this to go on people are being impoverished unemployment rate uh, six million more people filed for unemployment so how long can this really go on before there's just push too much pushback you know from from people and and people that are struggling financially um the second one is how do you re-enter kind of in a safe way and so uh, i I think it's going to be the vulnerable people are going to be the ones that are 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 last is what it seems like so maybe there's this certain minimal criteria that you have to meet before a community can can uh, re-enter people back in healthily. And so what does that look like? I think it depends on each, the conditions in every local community. And so Billings is going to be different than Orange County, you know? And so, like I said, Billings, Montana, we are so blessed. I don't know if we have the hand of God kind of protecting us a little bit more, or if it's because we like our space a little bit more, you know, it's probably, maybe it's both. I don't know. But there's been unlucky places. New York. I mean, what happened in New York? I don't know. Nobody really knows how that is. You know, we don't have all these elevators. We're not crowding in, you know, in subways and stuff. And it, I mean, that's definitely part of it. But even if we had that here in Billings, I just don't think it would have turned into that, you know? And um, I, I feel people are, are, are doing the best they can, right? People are doing the best they can, but um, Montana is different. And so my thought is that 
I mean, I, I think that it's going to ease up a little bit quicker here. We're watching data. Um, there's a, a new new information every single day, and so my hope is that uh, that I I think it'll start getting better, and people are going to start going back. Um, but how to do that? It, it's going to be a challenge in terms of healthcare. Where I think we're we seem good here in Billings, you know. Um, I think that the planning has been unbelievable, you know, with both hospitals in Riverstone. I, I think that the the surge preparation is amazing. It's just it's just so huge. But a lot of doctors, a lot of healthcare workers, nurses have taken a big financial hit because of all this mm. slowdown, and so. So it's hard. It's actually kind of hard for, for some people. And so, um, but yeah, it's it, the preparation is big. And so, um, I think it's going to come down to public public health, public policy on on all that stuff. But it affects, mm. like you're saying, Jordan. I think it affects each one of us just in a right. personal way. I mean, my my wife's mom is in in a nursing facility here, and we've been going up to her window you know, and waving and the kids put little flat or little uh, windmills outside the window and that's all they can do. And so, gosh, yeah. that has just got to be just depressing. And the isolation is huge. And, and it, I, I don't know how long that can go on for when that, when does that outweigh the risk that the, this virus is going right. to uh, cause, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, the, the healthcare being set up really well. And that's really awesome to yep. hear. That's very, very encouraging to know. Um, as far as what does the strain look like on the healthcare community right now? Um, how, and maybe even somebody might be thinking, how could we, uh, as this continues, if it, uh, you know, for the next couple of weeks, how can we support the healthcare community in this time? And are there tangible ways to to love them, to serve them, or um, even just partner with them. Obviously, some of the some of the guidelines are to help uh, mitigate how much strain is on the healthcare community. But even in a practical, local way, any ideas on how we can support you guys? Well, yeah. So I'm not on the front lines at all myself, you know. But uh, in the in the hospital, in the ERs, the ICUs, and in the hospitals themselves, there are shortages, and so there are shortages of gloves and masks and personal protective equipment, um, of, of sanitizing, um, you know, because they have to, I mean, wash everything multiple times all the time, all day long, you know. And so, I think that um, just making sure people aren't aren't hoarding stuff, any extra things mm -hmm. like a Clorox or spray or four hundred nine, even that we're looking for uh, from grocery stores or anywhere else. So people just make sure that they're not just hoarding it or anything because the hospitals need that, especially for ICUs and and uh, equip medical equipment and then the ERs and ambulances and everything. So because people are still having heart attacks, people are still having strokes. Um, and so we have to make sure that all of those measures are, are still maintained just as well. Um, the masks, so making sure people aren't hoarding any surgical masks or anything like that, because, um, you can make, if you really want to wear masks outside, you can just make your own cloth mask out of, you know, whatever the CDC recommends, if that's, um, your uh, preference. And so those would be kind of the main things. But like you said, I think like praying for some of the frontline nurses, paramedics, um, uh, the, even the janitors, people are keep the the custodial staff who's keeping a lot of uh, just the hospital super clean and and just uh, um, sanitizing everything. They're all exposed, 
um, to all of this. And so praying for them and, and uh, um, that's probably the number one thing um, for support right now. And so they are planning for a surge here, um, you know, at some point, but uh, my hope is that, like you were saying, the curve flattens out enough that it, it that it doesn't overwhelm right. uh, the system anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's great. On a non-COVID related question, more on a personal question, you know, you've talked about, you know, we, you wrote the book, obviously medical apologetics, um, but just obviously are passionate about numbers and and how all that looks. And really cool to hear you talk. What got you started down that path and what um, what originally triggered you to to become so passionate about that? Oh, you know, I think because of my own doubts. And so I would say um, when I first became a Christian, um, before I went to medical school, uh, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know, I couldn't grasp it all. And I really wanted to know, uh, learn as much as I could. And so, um, I would say from a personal level, I just, I think it was helpful to learn those things. And so, um, Ravi Zacharias was kind of the number one guy to go to at that point, but he mm-hmm. talked, he's, I can't, I can't speak like that, you know, and I was trying to read his books and learn it and, and I couldn't organize it all very well. And so I just learned more and more people. Um, or learn more about more and more people that that, that uh, were were kind of into apologetics and and everything. And so, um, as time went on, I there's just so much of it. There is so much that I just had to organize it. And so, uh, the brain works best when it has uh, categories. And so, women know this inherently. Honestly, women do it, and they do it way better than men do. And so that's why they they're way better at test taking and everything. But they can categorize things. They can put them away in filing cabinets and then go and access it. Well, so that's why I wrote that book is because I wanted to be able to um, do that because I know that that's how how my brain functions. Is I want it organized well, kind of systematically. But then you want to be able to access it. So when when something that you need is kind of familiar, then you can kind of go and grab it. And then you can also compare it to other things. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of a, a way to do that. And, and one way that I, um, in medicine, that we do that all the time is with diagnostic criteria. And so there's all these statistics about diagnostic criteria. If you fit into this probably or definitely, what are the chances that you likely have it? And mm-hmm. so the book is basically a hybrid of diagnostic criteria, building a case for a diagnosis, uh, and what are the chances of that with using the evidence for um, for God, basically. Yeah. And so, so that's what that is. It's a hybrid book of organizing the reasons for God's existence. It's good for people to hear. And yeah. yeah. Um, you're just always reasonable. I appreciate that about you. And oh my gosh. I don't think my wife doesn't think so. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not wise at all. Just around me then. You've done yeah. a good hey, job. Can I mention, can I mention one Please. other thing about the, oh, the virus thing? Maybe this would go absolutely. in. Is yeah. So maybe to help some people understand the, um, reason for physical distancing, or if you want to call it social distancing. Yeah, please. Is, um, because we're trying to reduce the, you're just trying to reduce the the spread rate, right? So one number that comes up a lot, and I bet it's going to keep on coming up, is that thing called R naught, R naught or R zero kind of bite, R prime or okay. R zero. So what that is is it's basically so going back to what a virus is, it's how much the virus can reproduce. Okay. Okay. So a, a quick example is how many people would one infected person infect. That's it. So measles, 
is like is huge. Measles is probably one of the biggest ones. Viruses uh, that has the highest uh, R naught to it, and it's like ten or twelve, maybe maybe more. Um, the coronavirus, the the thought right now, nobody knows, but maybe it's three to five, three to five. Okay. The typical flu is about two, two to two point five, and so. So the goal, the whole idea of social distancing or physical distancing is to try and reduce that number. So there's a lot of epidemiology out there. And if you can get that or not to less than one, the virus could potentially go away. And so, but can you really do that? I don't know. And nobody knows, you know, and um, because Nate had mentioned also, do they morph? Do they mutate? And so then do they become kind of something a little bit different or resistant or are they more likely to? to have a higher R naught. And mm-hmm. so in Montana, and, and it depends on the, the demographic of the state. So if your population density is one person per square mile, like in Montana or whatever it is, or six people per square mile, the R naught's going to be lower, right? Right. We have a better chance of lowering the R naught here than they do in Washington, DC, where there's a humongous population density. So, right. so for each one of us, if we only spread it to one person or less than one person on average, that's it. goes away. Mm. And so, but the trick is that we're in America and we travel all over. So it doesn't right. matter if Montana is less than one. Everybody has to get it down to less than one. Right. Um, and so there's that. That's social distancing. Okay. That's the best way to understand social can, distancing. Can I interrupt real fast? So yep. I had heard early on that the R not number was, this is probably three weeks ago. It was before we started shutting down around buildings. It actually might've even been that Saturday morning when we paused our and, and moved our services to online only. I had heard that number was around 2.2 was the speculation at the time. So that's increased over the last several weeks. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? I think that most people are thinking that it's probably in the three to four, or, yeah, the three point five to five range at the okay. moment. Um, but I bet it's going to change. I mean, yeah, I bet it's anywhere from two to eight. I don't know, you okay. know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it totally depends on where you're at at the sure. uh, at the time being. And so, um, but it, it could be. I hope it's low, like two point two, um, because as we see the projections kind of change because of social distancing a bit. And maybe it's not because of social distancing. Maybe it's just the virus itself. I, but it seems like it's because of that, because of the measures, yeah. and all of these things are are changing. And yeah. so, as you know, I mean, the projections are that they're projections. Right. They're not perfect. Right. They're not. They're they're just something to go off of to kind of give us an idea of, of what what's going on. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Nope. Yeah. But with the R not, that's the goal. That's the whole idea of, of social distancing is to get that that R not number as low as possible because could it eventually just go away? That's possible. Or will it just kind of buy us enough time to get one of the sure. medications out or the vac- buy enough time to get to the vaccine and then and then get to herd immunity at that point? Um, but some other things that people should pay attention to are the, that the, the, those two medications that look like they're really promising and that's hydroxychloroquine and, uh, and remdesivir. And so remdesivir, do you guys know some of the history behind that, that, no, that medication? Not, not the second one, but I, I heard a little bit about the hydrochloroquine. Is that what it is? Yeah. Hydroxychloroquine, but remdesivir, yeah, remdesivir. Think about this. So Gilead, Gilead neuro, or Gilead Sciences is that huge biotech company um, that basically came up with the, they're, they're great, with the cure for hepatitis C, 
caused by a virus and for uh, uh, managing HIV, so the human immunodeficiency uh, virus. So um, they're great. I mean, it doesn't cure HIV, but it sure makes people be able to live a full life. And so what they did when the Ebola outbreak was happening in Western Africa, they um, came up with remdesivir, an antiviral against that RNA virus, the Ebola virus. Did it work? No, it didn't work for Ebola. But what does it seem to work for? Five mm. years later, coronavirus. Oh, wow. Amazing. That's cool. And so it just brings a sense of kind of hope and, you know, just this kind of we're not in control sort of a thing, right? Like yeah. now you can repurpose that towards this, you know, which is really affecting us. And so, so there will be information that comes out probably in the next week or two on some of the big studies in China on, on remdesivir. And I bet, I think it's going to be promising. So uh, the interesting thing about that medication is it just decreases the ability of the virus to replicate and it's an infusion. And so you have to be in the hospital to take that one. Okay. Mm. And you would say that's a stronger candidate over the chloroquine? I bet they're both going to be useful. I okay. bet they're both going to be useful. The hydroxychloroquine will be nice because it's going to be something that people can probably take on their own, prescribed by a doctor, okay. you know, and um, as a pill, as an oral, maybe once a week or three times a week or something like that. And then the if if the viral load gets high enough and somebody and they're hospitalized with it, then that's when the remdesivir will be more useful. Oh, I just love that. I learned more in that little debrief from Dr. Chris French than I have reading multiple articles. Right. <laughs> right. My my final question that people have started talking about as we've seen sunshine and then we'll we'll wrap up. Do viruses respond to heat? Because there's Ooh. speculation and people talk about, hey, as it gets warmer. Um, I've heard some people say, you know, in warmer climates like down near the equator that it's not as severe. Um, and so I think some people are hoping that, oh, we're getting especially Montana. We might finally be close to, well, we've got snow in the forecast, but we might theoretically be close to summertime. Does that affect this at all? Um, wow. You know, I think that, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I would say most of the coronaviruses, people know that UV light seems to kind of damage their protein or, or the virus capsule itself so it might do that but i don't think anybody knows for sure um it can it can live for a certain amount of time but um i I would say but people do know about like hiv the hiv virus right and and those sorts of viruses that uh, ultraviolet light and radiation does kill it or 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 uh, stop it um the hope is, yeah, that. But I think the other thing that's going to happen as the nicer months come is people are just going to be inside less. They're going to be less contained. The aerosolization of of um, of talking is is more spread out, and uh, people are just outside more. And so the hope is, after this kind of wave, um, the the summer months hopefully buy more time because of that. And then if it starts picking up again in the fall, that um, that will be more prepared maybe have a couple of these antivirals out um and uh and then we can stamp down the little hot spots that pop up a little bit more thank you so much to dr chris french for sharing with us over the next several weeks we'll be talking about ways to get involved locally finances in crisis the creative process and how it helps us in these times parenting students through trauma and other topics that will hopefully help you in this season Make sure you share these with your friends and let them know about this episode. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions, you can send them to podcast at faithchapel.cc. Until next time.